And so our four um, panelists in this room, so first we've got Charles Montgomery. Charles is a pastor at the Vineyard in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and then we've got next to him is Michael Beck, and Michael's with Fresh Expressions, um, which is headquartered in Virginia, I believe, but you're in Florida, also a pastor, right? You listed many things, and I'm, I'm just giving the highlights there. All right, and then Levi Jones, and Levi is at Nazarene, is it Theological Seminary in Kansas City, the Missouri side, um, and he directs the Doctor of Ministry program there. Uh, and then Juliet Liu is editorial director for Missio Alliance and also is a pastor at Life on the Vine Church uh, with David Fitch, correct? Yeah, well, or not he is so no longer at Life on the Vine, Okay, but he did found Life on the Vine. Okay, gotcha. So Alex is just outside of the Chicago suburbs. Um, so those are our four panels. So um, yeah, with I'm going to start just closest to me going over. So Charles, give us your take on these questions. Well, I wrote some things down so I can stay within time. Um, so there's a prayer in John that um, Jesus prays that we all would be one as he and the Father are one and it's the Lord's Prayer. Um, and I always believe that we spend a lot of time asking the Lord to answer our prayers. But why not answer one of his? And so the churches in North America and particularly in the USA have um, been doing this for a number of years trying to pursue the multi-ethnic church, and recently there's some studies that say that it's working. Um, Protestant churches in the United States have become three times more likely to be racially diverse than they were 20 years ago. And the percentage of Protestant churches where no one racial group makes up more than 80% of the congregation has tripled from 4% in 1998 to 12% according to new research published in the Journal of Scientific Study of Religion. And evangelicals and Pentecostals show even higher levels of diverse churches, up to 15 and 16 percent respectively. Nationally, nearly 20 percent of American worshipers belong to multi-ethnic churches, and many American denominations are slowly catching on and I believe are warming up to the notion of answering Christ's prayer for oneness. But I've marveled at different conferences and denominations that are trying to walk this out. It normally starts with some catalytic event starts with some apologies and ends with some kumbaya moments. Um, but then it fizzles from there and goes back, folk go back to their own uh, respective places and rarely do they move beyond apology. And so how do we keep this momentum for the sake of the world? I suggest it happens when we build upon the apologies and move towards strategies, um, strategies that help us to answer Christ's prayer. These strategies I think are rooted in theological imagination and they develop our capacity. Um, three strategies I want to pose to kick it off are to, number one, develop our cultural intelligence. And um, Dave, Livermore, Dave Livermore, who is a senior consultant with the Cultural Intelligence Center in um, Grand Rapids, defines cultural intelligence as a person's capability to effectively um, move um, and operate across cultures. And I'm convinced the development of one CQ can occur spiritually and practically. For example, in the, consider the experience of Pentecost in the books of Act, Book of Acts, um, it hints that there is a spiritual dimension to CQ. Um, the disciples find them, find not their own, but um, other hot languages in their mouths. Uh, when the Holy Spirit descends upon them at Pentecost, the disciples open their mouths and somebody else's language comes out. Yet at the same time, these disciples were their own cultural selves. Um, so developing cultural intelligence involves um, understanding more deeply the experiences of another while being rooted in your own 
cultural reality. Um, I think that also a second strategy is we can develop a culture of inclusivity. Um, and we steward our diversity well by continuing to develop. So by cultural inclusivity, I mean I'm talking about developing an environment that moves beyond cosmetic diversity, where we simply worship side by side and towards mutual relationships that are characterized by reciprocal love. And we see this um, throughout the book of Acts. You witness a embryonic church uh, mature into local faith communities and that embody cultural inclusivity. Um, I talked about um, Acts 2. Um, you see um, it when the Spirit um, visits Samaria. Um, cultural inclusivity occurs between Samaritans and Jews as cultural walls are torn down. Um, it's established between Jews and Romans at the home of Cornelius. And um, also in Acts 11, when you see the establishment of the church at Antioch. And I believe that what sustained Antioch Church was sound leadership. Um, while not space, I don't have the time to dive into the intricacies of these leaders, but what I do want to share is it was a multi-ethnic leadership um, who had the necessary cultural competency and spiritual maturity um, required for leading a diverse Antioch church. Uh, the third strategy, I believe, is that we also have to develop a Christ-like intentionality. Um, that's vital to us responsibly stewarding our diversity well. Um, I think it's a non-negotiable. Jesus Christ is and will always be the head of the church. And if Pentecost is the beginning of the church, then Revelation 7 presents a picture of the end of the church. If you remember here, the John the Revelator points um, or paints a, uh, um, a picture. Um, he says that the, you know, the church is gathered around the heavenly throne fully inhabiting their specific cultural identities and representing a full acceptance of understanding of each other's culture. Meanwhile, the revelator's cadence of nations and tribes and peoples and languages occurs several times in Revelation, and each time it is stated in a new order, illustrating the equality represented when no one group dominates. So this is done by maintaining a laser beam focus on the Lamb of God and expressing their love for him and for one another. So what's one example of how this has lived on the ground? Um, one example, one example, again, for the sake of time that I see being lived out on the ground is at my church, Vineyard Columbus. Um, it is a church of 8,000 attenders. Um, and um, it, uh, we have over 130 um, countries represented and it's 44% um, people of color. And we are trying to work out all of these by engaging in a church-wide effort that's called Undivided, um, which is a vision of hundreds of small groups, each led by two leaders of different ethnicities that are racially balanced. And these groups meet for six weeks, culminating around the dinner, dinner table of somebody's home, where they fellowship and they discuss moving to on-ramps to engage in acts of social justice as a group. So it's our attempt to answer Christ's prayer by creating context across racial, cultural, and ethnic divides, um, covenanting to put faith in action. And I believe that this comprehensive approach maximizes our potential to bring about transformative change to our communities and the world. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, before we head on to Michael, I want to say that after they've each had their chance, 
then um, they're going to have a chance to each ask one question of one of the other panelists, and then we'll have it open so that you can have Q&A that I'll help moderate at the end. So if you have, you know, spurring thinking and questions you want to ask, just keep those in mind for later. So, all right, over to you, Mark. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at this backwards, like I've done most of my life in ministry. Um, and I'm going to start uh, with imagination uh, for the church. And what better place to start than the imagination of Jesus, um, which has largely been lost in the church? Uh, when's the last time we actually really um, tried to lean into the imagination of Jesus and the stories that he told and the parables that he used? I think that's largely been lost in the church in the United States. Um, we've uh, traded out our, our story for um, a Euro-tribal corporate narrative, um, and, and followers of Jesus don't know our own story and have been going to church their whole lives. Um, so I, I just want to lift up three uh, stories that Jesus tells and, and to help us kind of enter into that um, and the first one's in uh, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Uh, and Jesus gives us the image of, you know, the, the sower going out profusely, generously casting the seeds of the gospel out into the world. That is something the church needs to have an imagination about and find ways to do. Um, the other image is in Luke 13, which is about the, the barren fig tree. Um, and so there's a tree and the owner of the field comes along and says, this tree's not bearing fruit. Let's tear it up, rip it out, get rid of it. And the field tender comes along and says, no, give me, give me three years. Let me cultivate and tend and care for this tree and see if it'll bear fruit, which is, um, you know, Jesus stepping in in the three years of his ministry. So the church also has to cultivate an imagination of how do we revitalize inherited congregations <coughs> that are using up the soils of their community, but not really bearing fruit. And then the third image comes from Paul. So we're going to jump from Jesus' imagination to Paul' imagination, but very much Paul completely <laughs> breathing and dreaming in, in the imagination of Jesus. And Romans 11 gives us an image of a tree. And I think this is one for us in North America to really pay attention to. Uh, and there, it's a time of liminality and in-betweenness. Uh, and so there's the Jewish tradition and, and the faith that's now these, these wild Gentiles are being grafted into this tree. And the Bible never really gives us uh, a clear definition of the church. Like the church is dot, 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 tweet. But the Bible gives us this incredible kaleidoscope <coughs> of images and metaphors of what the church is. So the church is the body of Christ. Uh, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the vineyard. He's the vine, we're the branches, the church is the living temple, and Jesus is the cornerstone. We're all built upon uh, him, the cornerstone, as living stones. And Paul gives us this image of a tree <coughs> with deep roots and wild branches. Um, and so Paul, he likes to mix his metaphors, and he starts off talking about in Romans 11, uh, dough, uh, and how a, a portion of that dough makes the whole batch holy. Then he shifts immediately into this tree image, and what, it, what the tree is rooted in gives life to the tree and makes the whole tree holy. And so what the tree is rooted in is Messiah Jesus and the matriarchs and the patriarchs and the, the law and the prophets. Uh, but now this, this new thing is being blended together with what Paul calls grafting. So Paul's a city boy. He's not really a country boy, but he's borrowing some, 
some imagery from Jesus and talking about this is an unnatural image of God taking wild branches and into a cultivated tree, which would be horticulturally speaking, the opposite of what you would do. Um, but so God's doing this supernatural thing where he's making these two things, one through a process of grafting. So uh, in the United States today, we, we find ourselves in a time of liminality and in-betweenness where we define ourselves literally as post-everything, right? Post-Christendom, post-industrial, which means we're in kind of a gap, a space, where we know what we used to be, we know we're not that anymore. We don't fully know what we're moving into, what the Spirit's leading us into. Um, and so we're defining ourselves on what we used to be as we're kind of venturing into the future that's really unknown. Um, so I love this whole conversation that we're having where we're asking questions. We're coming to the table saying, we don't have all the answers. We actually don't know because we're coming out of a time of Christianity, um, which was an aberrant time, which is not going to happen again, and we're in a whole new scenario. And so in the midst of that, I think there's some wisdom in Paul's image here of being rooted in our deep traditions. Uh, and really, I'm talking about the deep traditions, not the, not the Euro-tribal narratives we've laid over that. Um, but also this, these wild, what, what we call fresh expressions of church or emerging forms of church. There's many, many different brands of this and definitions out there. But, when you but do those that, two things being grafted together. So to when you do that and we start looking at our communities as something to own or fix or take back for Jesus, uh, we should consider the, the fact that Jesus already owns the community. It's already his. And in a sense, we'd be taking it back from him. And our, our communities are really um, ecosystems that need to be cultivated, that need to be cared for. And uh, in, in my context, so I, I serve dying churches, um, revitalization scenarios. That, that's what I've been appointed to my whole ministry as an ordained elder in the Methodist Church. Uh, and I'm a cultivator of fresh expressions for my conference. I just want to throw these numbers at you. We have 625 churches in the Florida Conference. Uh, Methodist churches, 472 are either flat, plateaued, or declining uh, in their average wor worship attendance over the last five years. 242 of those churches lost 20% of their membership over the last five years. 272 with zero or one baptism. Um, 304, and some of them for years, haven't had a baptism or a profession of faith, which is a new Christian coming to Christ. 304 who lost uh, average worship attendance in areas where there's tremendous population growth. So one of the greatest uh, obstacles before the church is uh, the decline of inherited congregations who've lost their story uh, in their why and their purpose, who've lost their capacity to imagine or dream. And I don't think that they would even take some of our language we're using here about the life of the church for the sake of the world. Some of them that I've encountered believe that the life of the church is there to take care of them, right? So um, when we actually do the work of casting the seeds, when we do the work of cultivating and renewing inherited congregations, because we can plant churches, but we can't plant them fast enough at the rate that they're closing. Hmm. So we have to do both. And every church, by releasing the priesthood of all believers, by releasing the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers in our congregations, the way that we find new life is by releasing our people to plant new churches. Now, they won't look like our grandma's church, 
um, but they are churches and they take place in third places, first place, second place out in the community and those things tether back together creating this new ecosystem um, that we call a blended ecology of church where inherited emerging forms are working together. Great place to do it. Yeah, um, we'll send it to Levi in a minute, but I love this panel because this is real life. This is the yeah. trenches ministry. You know, it's not the bestseller, it's not the formula, it's not even the speaker that we, I mean, the speakers have been great so far, but so thank you, the two of you so far, for just sharing how you're trying to live this out, real life, real ministry. Yes. Over to you, Levi. Um, so it's probably helpful to know, uh, I run the Doctor of Ministry program at Nazarene Theological Seminary, but prior to that, about a year and a half ago, uh, my wife and I were co-pastoring in a small town in northeast Oklahoma. Um, we began in 2014, uh, it was a small little church um, in a town of about 8,500 people. Uh, it was in a very visible, prominent spot within the town on a major highway. People could not tell me where that church was at. Unless I said, we're across from Subway. The, oh, that church. Um, we literally had two neighborhoods. One was divided away from us from, by a fence, just right behind us. The other one was a, a, a housing neighborhood with Section 8 housing, uh, lower income, and uh, they, they couldn't name who we were. We, we didn't know our neighbors uh, because we weren't a neighbor. Um, so when I, when I began pastoring and seeing that particular issue, along with some other kinds of issues like uh, sort of the rise of militant nationalism and uh, some of the issues of racism within that, that town, which were about uh, 30, 40 minutes from Tulsa, where you had um, you know, the bombing of Black Wall Street, uh, sharecroppers. I, I had people in my congregation, one family that was an African-American family who's um, parents had been sharecroppers and had shared stories that were just horrendous. Um, and not that those realities had disappeared, um, but there was some significant challenges. Uh, so how, how could I help, um, uh, especially as a person of privilege that embodies a lot of that as a, a white male, how could I help my people begin to see uh, those systems that for many of them, they either refuse to recognize um, or just had been living in it so long that it was like a fish in water. They, they never recognized the water they were swimming in. That's a really difficult task as a pastor. Um, you become a lightning rod in a lot of ways when you begin to address those kinds of issues. Uh, Willie James Jennings has this really wonderful book called The Christian Imagination, and he's primarily dealing with um, uh, issues of mission and imperialism and uh, you know how the church kind of got wrapped up into this imperialist kind of game. Uh, he, he defines the church's mission as the original trajectory of intimacy. I like that. Um, I think we've missed some of that. Uh, I think we've, we've sort of re-narrated the mission of the church to be sort of this uh, dominant um, uh, How do I want to frame this? I want to be careful. Um, but we, we've sort of gone in to communities expecting to conquer them. Um, you know, I love preaching. Uh, and one of the, the uh, temptations, I think, is to see people as captive audiences. Uh, again, kind of an imperialistic mode. I'm going to come in and dump all the information on you and somehow assimilate you into being what I am. And uh, we've we treated our communities like that. Well, and you know, so when you have 
uh, this kind of attitude of we're going to make you like us. We're going to, to shape you to be like us and assimilate you in all these kinds of different ways and sometimes uh, culturally very inappropriate kinds of ways. Um, no wonder the church has cultivated this sort of ethos of not being trusted. Um, that, that is, to me, what's the sort of pervasive spirit of our culture, um, not just within the church, but in American culture. It's one of distrust. Um, we don't know who to trust. We, we're in a, you know, the age of information, and we have all sorts of information, and along with that, misinformation and disinformation. I mean, it just floods us, and so we, we don't know what voices, our people don't know what voices to listen to. They're often so uh, just battered from Sunday to Sunday by all these kinds of voices telling them who they are and what they should be and who the enemies are, and it becomes really a gripping kind of fear and anxiety. And, and when you have dysfunctional systems like that that are rooted in anxiety, um, they're not always open to being challenged and changed. So I think one of the things that we have to begin to do as pastors is take the long view. That there's no sermon, uh, there's no um, you know, lesson that's going to change them in a moment. But we have to do the awful, hard, patuo uh, <laughs> uh, kind of work, um, as Dr. Wesley was saying this morning, or this afternoon, we've got to be in people's lives in such a way and recognize that when we begin to disrupt those systems of dysfunction, um, we're probably going to be the ones that receive the backlash. Um, and I, I had that happen. I actually had a gentleman um, come to my house, bang on my door, and burst in my house and yell at me in front of my little daughter. Um, you know, it, it was frightening, really frightening. Um, <clears throat> but to go back to like Luke 13 in that image of the fig tree where the, the gardener or the owner of the plot of land is looking at this tree and said, after three years, I've come back and there is nothing on this tree. And sometimes I think we sort of, as pastors, feel like that. We look at the tree and it's like, where's the fruit? There is just this barren fig tree and I've about had it. Um, and, and I do think there's this moment where Jesus or the gardener says, let's give it a year and let's see what happens. And I think sometimes as pastors, that's exactly what we have to do is to take maybe even like the side of Moses where God gets mad at the people and says, let's hold off, God. These are still your people, messed up and as broken as they are and as I am. Um, how, how is it that you're calling me to serve in this context uh, and to bear witness to the gospel that hasn't been captivated by these other sort of narratives? That's really difficult work. But I think that's the mission of the church, to do what Brian Stone calls uh, creating the new social option for us. Is there a third way that doesn't look like left and right? Um, is there something that looks much more gospel kingdom oriented that we're called to? And I think it means that we bear uh, witness to the God uh, who is working creatively in the particularities of our contexts, in the stories of our people, to narrate and name, say, this is where God's at work. And I think to open up spaces with conversation uh, with people that we would never have conversation before. Um, sometimes we treated the, tr uh, the church as like the field of dreams. Um, if you build it, they will come. And that's how my little church was. You know, we, we had this beautiful building in a prominent place, and we expected people just to come. 
the reality is we actually needed to go to them and begin to do that. So we, we did that. We started getting out into the neighborhood, walking the neighborhood and introducing ourselves and um, not to get people into our church, but just to begin to be neighbors with them. That's a different kind of thing. When we, when we again, are un thinking about, um, you know, sort of the imperialistic mode is to, t to go in and take. Um, I think the Jesus way is to go in and to begin to serve as a neighbor, which is a very different kind of reality. Um, but it's a messy reality, I think, as well, but one that we're continuously called and equipped to do. Uh, there's a, a book um, along those lines. I just, it just came out, and it's um, called Eat What Is Set Before You by a guy named Scott Hagley, who's a professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Um, you know, our youth leaders together back in Minnesota. But he, he, as part of his doctoral study at Luther, and the, the metaphor and image of that is um, kind of like you said, churches come in and say, we're going to set the table, come and eat. And instead they're saying, the church should eat what is set before them and be in relationship with the neighborhood and the context, and it's a it's a symbiotic relationship of shaping and forming. And um, so, recommend it's for a rich book. So, and you talked about power. So you've seen some power issues in outside Chicago. So I'm going to hand it to Juliet and, yeah. and your responses. Yeah. So as I was thinking about just what to talk about today, um, this was the passage that I felt the Lord brought to mind. It's from Revelation 18. Um, and I'll shorten it here, but um, the prophet says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons. Um, but then to the people of God, the voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, and so that you do not share in her plagues. So there's this invitation from heaven to come out of the city of Babylon. Um, so in this past year where I live, and, and I know Dave Fitch touched on this um, in, his, in his plenary talk, um, but I live in the Chicago area, and in this past year, uh, two of the largest and most visible churches in our area went through very public leadership scandals. And when I say public, I mean the Chicago Tribune was um, responsible for a lot of the reporting and the investigative journalism that went into unveiling what happened at Willow Creek. Um, the way that a lot of the stories from Harvest came out were, they were blogged about. And so there are very, very public scandals. <clears throat> so as you probably know, um, Bill Hybels was accused of sexual harassment by female staff and church members. Um, this is a church that has, on average, 24,000 people attending one of its seven locations in the Chicago area. Um, and then the response of the leadership team was to immediately cover up what he was doing, to defend him, and actually to, um, to say the women were lying. The, and, and some of them insinuated it. Some of them just straight out said, that they were being dishonest. Um, until, as the stories continue to come out, they could no longer deny it. So they, they didn't take the proactive approach of saying, we'll look into it. They, they only admitted it was true because they could no longer not say it, was, it wasn't true. Um, <clears throat> and then not long after that, uh, stories came out. Um, they started being leaked about James McDonald, who's the pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, or Harvest Bible Fellowship. Um, this is a church that has over 12,000 members in our city. Um, and uh, stories were leaking about his abusive leadership, um, his abusive leadership behavior, as well as the ways that he was mismanaging funds in the church. Um, for the most part, with the knowledge of his elder team, who again um, came to his defense as stories emerged, and ate and were aiding him in his abuse of power. So I just want you to imagine where I live, how this has completely decimated the witness of Christ. 
<clears throat> I have overheard conversations um, between other people as like, you know, the Chicago Tribune was was uh, publishing stories about Bill Hybels. I've overheard stories in coffee shops with people saying, that is why I never go to church anymore. Or that is why when I have a friend start to talk about Jesus, I run the other direction. So it's just completely decimated the witness of the church in Chicago. I mean, why would any previously unchurched person even think about attending a church or listening to anyone who calls himself a Christian? <clears throat> and um, as Fitch pointed out, it's not just the evangelical megachurches. Um, you know, the whole report about the Southern Baptist Convention also came out this past year. Um, all of the ongoing things with the, the Vatican and the Catholic Church. Um, and so we're just left wondering, like, what is this about? Why does this keep happening? And how do we stop this, right? The, how do we stop our witness being so completely damaged so that people are fleeing believers? And I think that we can talk about leadership structures. Um, we can talk about accountability and how that's necessary for people in power. Those are all really good and needed conversations. Um, but I think it really comes down to the question of who do we worship? Who do we worship? Because these stories of abuse and institutional cover-up, I think, reveal what we truly value. They reveal what we really believe. I think when it comes to who we worship, we look more like Babylon than the kingdom of God. And so the church is paying allegiance to the same gods of Babylon, um, power, wealth, success. Um, and these idols make us greedy for more numbers, for more influence, for more platforms. And they cause us to be more interested in self-preservation than our own salvation. Um, they tell us to protect the men who bring our institution success. I mean, James McDonald started off with a church of 18 people, and he grew it to 12,000. And similarly, Bill Heibel started with 125 and grew that congregation to 24,000. And so that's why when allegations come out against these men, church leaders around them say, we can't afford to listen to the truth. Because imagine how this empire that they've built for us might be lost. And so because we are worshiping the same gods of Babylon, the church is compromised. We're paying allegiance to the same gods of Babylon, but in reality, our God is the crucified and risen Messiah. So abuse of power infects the church because the church, I think, is worshiping the wrong gods. Um, one of our writers put it like this in a recent article. He said, <clears throat> idolatry in the biblical imagination is rarely, if ever, a purely philosophical choice. It is always a pragmatic one. Idolatry is rarely a purely philosophical choice. It is always a pragmatic one. How will we survive? The question Israel was always asking was this, which is the better bet for us? that we stay faithful to the God of Israel or that we follow the gods of the nations. And scripture makes it clear that the way we answer that question with our words and our lives has consequences. It's the choice between life and death for us. And so 
what I see as being the greatest challenge uh, for the witness of the church where I am is just this question of who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping the gods of Babylon or are we worshiping the crucified and risen Messiah? Um, I believe that we can still reclaim our witness um, and primarily through the practice of repentance. We have to practice repentance. We have to be a people of confession. And the thing is, I think if we worship a cruciform Messiah, then we can join Christ in the grave. And we can lay down our idols. We can lay down our defensiveness and our instincts for institutional self-preservation. We can lay down our desire to protect the church's image. And then as we speak the truth about our failures, as we confess how we've gotten power wrong, as we confess our history of silencing victims, then we entrust the life of the church to God, which is exactly what Jesus does with his own life. He entrusts it to the Father because it's his kingdom, it's not ours. And the kingdom is bigger than any one church or institution. And it's the Lord who ultimately upholds and extends the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't need us to defend it. And so we place our faith in the lamb who was slain instead of the beast. Um, so I think we need to reimagine power and success for the church. Um, we need to reimagine um, what leadership structures can look like. But ultimately, we need to, we need to pay allegiance uh, to the Christ uh, of, of Scripture, to the, risen, uh, to the crucified and risen Messiah. Um, so we try to, oh, is that it? Well, okay. With your one final thought. We, so uh, we try to, you know, at the church I'm a part of, we try to, we try to reimagine leadership. We try to imagine what it's like to be a people of repentance and confession. Um, and if you want to ask questions in the Q&A, then I can share a little bit more about that. Great. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you to our four uh, panelists. So um, I'm going to ask them, you're, I'm going to give each of you a chance, starting with Charles and this end, to ask, ask a question of one other panelist in a moment. But um, while you're thinking about what your question might be and to whom, um, I want you out here to turn to someone and just, what, uh, just share what um, stood out to you, what kind of hit you or intrigued you that, of anything that was set up here today. So just turn to somebody for just a minute, minute or two. Charles, who would you like to ask a question? Who's your question for? I'll go right, to, no, right next to me then. Right. I'll go my neighbor, I'll just go like that. Um, I was just trying to take some notes here and thinking through some things. And um, really, just to kind of connect the dots a little bit, I'd like to just know a little bit more about your church. You know, in, in particular, um, um, what's, been the, what's been the trajectory of that church? You say you work with Fresh Expression, but what, what, what have been um, probably, um, you know, in just looking at the trajectory of that church, the, what, what, what are the demographics like? Have they, um, have they shifted in some way? Um, or is that not even on the radar screen? Okay. And for these, we'll do about three minutes. Three minutes? Yeah, oh. Sure. We're going to do all of you in 15, including the questions. Oh. Uh, yeah. Wow. And then open it up from questions from everybody out here. So, yeah, this is your elevator speech. Okay, so I have a book downstairs called Deep Roots, Wild Branches, Revitalizing the Church and the Blended Ecology. Okay. There's no way I'm going to be able to um, even scratch the surface of. So, but, read the book. Read the book. Yeah, yeah. It's downstairs. 
Um, Methodist Episcopal South Congregation planted in 1881. My wife and I serve as co-pastors. So for, for non-Methodists in the room, that's a congregation that was born out of the slavery issue and chose that they wanted to continue to have slaves. So that's the, the roots of the tradition of the congregation that we serve, that we came to. We live in a, um, a, a town in North Florida where there's railroad tracks down the middle, white folks on one side, blacks on the other. My wife and I came to this church. There were uh, our family of eight children and a blended family. We doubled the congregation our first Sunday. Um, and so we started to uh, challenge that. We started to, to, to just go and try to be with um, uh, people on the other side of the tracks. We started doing these fresh expressions. One of them was called Connect. We did a big uh, prayer walk for interracial peace. We had 100 people show up for that. We renovated the MLK Junior Building Center together, and then we turned that into a church uh, where kids come and have breakfast and families come together. So this is a church now that worships about 300, has 13 fresh expressions, all overseen by lay pioneers. So just normal folks sitting in the pews who planted churches out of their passions. Uh, we started a fresh expression called Trap Stars for Jesus, because as we were over on the other side of the community doing our thing at Connect, we had some drug dealers come over and start bringing us money. So my wife literally calls me and says, hey, honey, the guys from across the street came over and brought us this wad of cash money. She's like, what do I do with that? I'm like, I don't know. It's like an ethics debate for a seminary classroom or something. <laughs> I said, it, it, it belongs to the kingdom now. Go ahead and take it. Um, so that opened the door for us to go up, these very entrepreneurial, God-given, gifted men and women. And we started a fresh expression around Hey, half the time we're going to talk about Jesus. The other half the time we're going to talk about how do you find a niche market? How do you get workers' comp insurance? How do you take your startup money and create a legitimate business? So we've had all these little micro businesses kind of spring off of that. Long story short, because I, I know I'm running out. Um, so a church on the other side of the tracks came to us, Pastor Taylor, God's Glory Ministry, and said, Hey, we, we lost our building. We need a building. And we said, Hey, well, guess what? We have a building and it's daddy's. It's not ours. So we want you to have it. We want you to have an office. We want to worship in it together. We want to do ministries together. And we're not going to charge you anything because it's your house too. So those two congregations have merged. We've become one church. We have three services, and, and they're all kind of blended. They're contemporary. One is a very much Pentecostal, full African-American, um, go in, slain in the spirit, speaking in tongue kind of service. Then we have, uh, yeah. Then we have, uh, <laughs> that's where I would like to worship. Yeah. Then there's us, you know, a traditional service with bathrobes and stoles happening, you know, traditional methods. That's their contemporary kind of where our two congregations are blended together. We're doing all that. So this is just God has breathed on this little racist church and created this whole new creation. We're trying to live into Charles' vision of, you know, not just being multi-racial and multicultural, but inner uh, and sharing leadership and sharing ministry and being together in that way. For that, you get to ask the next question of one of your friends. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Me? I get that? Okay. So I'm going to go to Charles. Cause <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get him to preach because if y'all were here two years ago and he preached Stay Woke, how many of y'all remember that? Okay, I remember it. The dove, where did the dove land? Um, on Jesus. Um, I don't know. It happened in the Bible, yeah. It's in the Bible. <laughs> so um, could you just unpack... Uh, you, you brought out the CQ, cultural intelligence, and um, 
can you just unpack that concept a little bit for us and, and maybe talk about how churches could have more of it? Like, because I sense we probably don't have very good con cultural intelligence. Yeah, um, quickly again, um, you know, cultural intelligence is really a, um, a term that looks at how, well, it really talks about how you effectively operate across cultures. That's really what it is, and it's an uh, it's an academic term in that sense. But it's um, but CQ is the um, really the only um, academically validated um, um, instrument or whatever in which one's able to do that. You know, so a lot of people talk about it theoretically in that sense. But how are we? But how can you measure it? And I'm, and very um, very um, different than one's IQ the CQ actually can be measured, it actually can be improved upon, mm -hmm. you know, in that sense or whatever. So uh, when we talk about CQ, um, my, fr my friend um, Santes Beatty actually has a um, seminar that he's doing here in this, here in this uh, at Missio called Cultural Intelligence Multipliers. And so that's where you can get, you, you can really look at it in that sense or whatever, but, but really in that sense, um, I believe that churches, um, should look at it, it has a spiritual dimension to it. I believe churches should look at it particularly because um, you all have seen the stats. When you look into the next um, 40 years here in the United States of America, there will not be one, um, one demographic majority in that sense. And our, white, our Anglo sisters and brothers actually will not be a majority. We're actually seeing that happen um, um, right now with um, uh, the millennial generation, particularly children under 18. Mm -hmm. So we're beginning to see that. And so when we look towards our future and we may reimagine our future in that sense, um, churches that are not serious about um, developing their cultural intelligence are actually in danger of segregating themselves into irrelevance. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of that, we have to look at how we are developing that, um, how we're becoming more sensitive to that, um, so that as we're operating with other cultures, it helps our evangelistic, it helps our evan evangelistic um, witness um, in that sense in terms of how uh, reimagining what church is going to look like in the future. So. I'm going to ask Juliet a question. Um, so you mentioned uh, several of the things that you talked about in terms of uh, churches, systemic issues, sin, brokenness, and then talked about um, the practice of repentance. Mm -hmm. Um, and thinking specifically about uh, social repentance, um, what does that look like for you in your context? Uh, how, how do we, um, especially like for my tradition, uh, we really struggle with that piece. Um, we might do some personal kinds of things, but we really struggle to understand the sort of social dynamics. So mm -hmm. what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so for us, one of the phrases that has helped us the most is the is the phrase uh, begin with me um so we often um you know when when things happen in chicago like when there's a, a shooting when there's police violence um or when you know as news was breaking about these church leadership scandals we we make it a point to interrupt what we're doing on a sunday morning and go with a different plan and we take time to lament that this is going on but we don't stop there with like, oh Lord, how horrible that these things are going on out there. We always turn from lament to repentance by using the phrase, uh, and begin with us. So 
Lord, bring justice to the streets of Chicago, bring justice between the races, and begin with us. So if there's any, like whatever needs to happen for racial healing to come to the city, begin here in our hearts. Root out the things that need to be rooted out in our hearts first. Um, so that's how we pray together as a congregation, that we, we go from lament to, to confession by using that phrase, begin with us. Um, and then as a pastor, like I just try to, to sort of um, fuel the imaginations of my congregation for what it looks like to be a people of repentance by just being really transparent. Um, and when I preach, you know, just being really honest about like, um, you know, this week I, I overpowered my children by yelling at them because sometimes that's the only way I know how to parent. And it's the only way I know how to accomplish what I, I need to happen is by overpowering them. So just being really honest about those little daily things so that when they're out in the world parenting or talking to a coworker and dealing with workplace situations or grappling with these larger social issues, that that imagination for a people of repentance and confession is in their minds. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which means it's your turn to ask questions. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm supposed to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, can, you feel free. You, you can bypass me. I, I was curious, Charles, about your church. I'm just I'm wondering what your um, pastoral staff looks like. I imagine it's pretty diverse, and so I'm just wondering, like, I mean, is is that true? Is it? We're getting there. Okay, <laughs> and, and I guess like, what are you learning about like what's hard about having a really diverse leadership team? Like, what are challenges that have come up, and, and what are you learning about that? Yeah, um, well, um, I, um, well, for, well, first and foremost, we actually formed a diversity committee in that sense in our, in our church because while we were 43% um, people of color, we did not see that evidenced in our, um, in our power structure okay. in that sense. And so um, as a result, we began to learn a little bit more about implicit bias mm -hmm. and how the reality is that just like in the secular world that people have, a t that like is known by like, that people have a tendency to be able to, 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 to lean towards um, the people that they know when it comes to um, actually um, recruiting new talent <laughs> in that sense. And so for us, one of the things that we had to learn was we had to um, actually begin to put in front of our staff the reality that there are um, thousands of qualified candidates there. And then, we be had to, and then we had to begin to start to say, who's in your friendship circles? You know? And we had to begin to start pushing different dynamics among our staff in terms of, we have about 200 people on our staff. So beginning to say, who are the, who are, who are, you know, who's in your friendship circles? And we began to, um, and we're beginning to move in this program where, well, program is a, is a strong word, but we're beginning to move them in a way that um, actually expose them to different contexts. Um, and so we begin to start asking, who's in your small group? But then also, have you began to visit other settings that are outside of your comfort zone? And as in, for the purposes of exposing them to the reality that there is a world beyond themselves. And so that's been a really big challenge you know, in that sense for us. The other challenge in that sense is um, dealing somewhat with the power structure 
that just because you happen to have this whole notion of cosmetic diversity, you know, on your staff and to say, you know, well, that person's a cook, you know, oh, that's great. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, the pastoral staff, when it comes to our directors in that sense, really beginning to toe the line, even when it comes to um, our hiring practices, we're beginning to start to look at our different hiring practices and how um, we're holding people to the reality that um, there must be, there must be at least two qualified um, persons of color um, in your interview pool yeah. before we add, before we even, um, you know, consider hiring a position. That doesn't mean that because they're a person of color, they're going to get that in that sense, but it does mean that you're walking, you're walking out in terms of intentionality. So that's the biggest thing, you know, in terms of staffing that we're learning. Um, the second thing is also in terms of being able to look at the visibility um, of who's on stage, looking at the visibility in terms of the images that we are projecting, looking at the visibility of the stories that we happen to tell. It's not always Green Book in that sense, it's not always in that sense, uh, or Green Book in reverse in that sense or whatever, but really showing that people can really have um, um, true mutuality in terms of relationships and helping one another. So those are some of the things that we're working through. Well, at this point, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open it up. I'll um, yeah, moderate, so if you want, raise your hand and then you can direct it to whoever you have a question. So I see you, 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 okay, go ahead. Hi, uh, Michael, Mike will uh, substantiate this. It took all of my, uh, my self-control not to be talking. Well, you guys are talking, it was awesome. You guys are amazing. Um, I, I wanted to first say, uh, just to reflect back, you say start with me. Um, one of the things I have been doing over 20 years is to confront my own racism and my own white supremacy and I've got a knife in it and I'm twisting it and it's bleeding and it's not quite dead yet. I'm working at killing it. Um, and a part of that for me is to engage differently. For instance, in the last month I've, I've read uh, Trouble I've Seen, Drew Hart's Trouble I've Seen is a very helpful book. Mm -hmm. um, and visited with him, videoed him in the last little bit, but engaging with him has been helpful. Um, and uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor Noah in The Daily Show recently did a thing on reparations. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. It's reframing in a completely different way. And so one of the things that didn't come, what, what I loved what you guys said, there's one thing that didn't come up, and that is the economic power. Um, how do we set people up for success that have never, that have had multiple, multiple, multiple generations of being undermined, and, and um, how do we uh, create uh, what Len Sweet calls a terroir? How do we become fertile uh, for, uh, from an economic standpoint? as well as all of the others. So is that a question for anyone particular? No, just all Because of you. it what could you... take 15 minutes with everybody answering right. it. So I'll tell one or two of you take a quick stab at it. We've got several questions. So I've spent, I've spent a, a, a master's and part of a doctorate on, on a way to do that, on a strategy, and finding very little interest. What are you guys finding? Anybody finding any interest in, in a, a new economic model for church? I wish I could say our denomination was at the forefront of this. Most of the time, our sort of economic uh, plan for uh, churches, pastors are going to be bivocational, and they're going to be also the one that bear the brunt of the finances. Um, so we have not necessarily done good work in that. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I would say the same is true for the sort of both explicit and implicit racism within the denomination. Um, I think maybe uh, again thinking about the church in Acts 2 having all things in common 
Um, one thing I, I think we have to begin to do is sort of unwind the sort of capitalistic notion that those who deserve get. Um, and, and again, I think as Charles was talking about, finding people that are quite capable, uh, but systems have sort of excluded them from being at the table. Um, so how do we bring people into that sort of conversation to actually um, not just simply have them at the table, but to empower them to make decisions and to actually act? Uh, that to me is one of those really difficult things to do, but that's actually called the pastor, I think, or the pastoral staff, empowering others to do the work of ministry. Um, I don't know, I wish I had a, a step to do. But. So, so the frustration is we got we have ways of doing this. We have roadmaps to create cap to take capital and infuse it into the into the community, and the church has no interest. I mean, I'm hearing here David. David's a friend of mine. I'm I'm cheering, but that was all theory. We actually have the next five steps to do, and no interest, zero. Anybody else want to take a stab at the question portion? So no, I'm just saying, next, you know, one. at our next gathering, we've got to have you up here in one That's of our right. forums, and you can mm -hmm. you can kind of share the the model that you've been studying and that you would put forth, because I think we're definitely in need of an imagination for that. Yeah. Yeah. The the the, the only thing I would share is that um, we can talk about offline. I mean, there's a difference between um, equality and equity. Mm -hmm. and that standpoint of whatever so oftentimes we talk about so so that's a complex question when you say that in that sense but you know it's not just I, I think we have to look at ways in which we are um, uh, as churches being equitable um, as well as um, fighting against some of the, some of the systemic barriers that are actually that actually uh, might put someone in a situation like that one um, one particular tangible example um, for us um, was when we, was several years ago when um, everything jumped off in Ferguson, right? Everything jumped off in Ferguson in that sense, we began to look at um, how do we respond? How do we respond as church? So one of the things that we looked at was we saw a, um, what well, we learned of an African-American pastor uh, who had almost like a storefront type of church or whatever there in Ferguson. Um, and so what we ended up doing was we brought him in to Columbus, Ohio, um, and we connected them with our large pastor network. We asked him to share his story, in particular about his church and the vision and so forth and so on. And what we ended up doing in that sense was we, A, we took up a collection to be able to restore his church building that happened to be burned down by arson. You know, and so we restored his church building. Second, we began to send out a team and deploy a team um, to help him build it as well because for us that was an equitable type of thing we just weren't throwing money at it but we actually were bringing somebody in to share their story from their perspective that touched the heartstrings of churches in the community and then we reinvested in that community not just dollar wise but we also sent people over to help build that back up again and that's just kind of what building block is one tangible small example in terms of us not being colonialist in yes. terms of trying to go into the community and establish yes. another church, but actually working with people in the community who are indigenous to that community and yes. boosting them up in a way that they can become a, their own economic engine and help to restore and revitalize the community yes. that they're in. Yes. Can I throw one tweet? Throw, yeah. what, one just second. one tweet in there. Because we've sold out our narrative for a corporate narrative from, from you know the Jesus story, all our metrics of success are about um, full-time clergy. So if you're 
church is healthy, you got a full-time pastor and they have a full-time salary and it meets a certain. Actually, healthy churches uh, should have part-time clergy, bi-vocational or co-vocational, so uh, from bi to two to co to with. So turning our job and our community work into a church. And the cool thing about Fresh Expressions of Church, um, they don't cost anything. It's a complete return to the priesthood of all believers, these emerging forms of church. Mm-hmm. There's no salaries. Um, it's a completely dispersed, polycentric, released mode of being the church, where the inherited church is just one habitat in the larger ecosystem. But so at Wildwood, we have 300 people worship. We have no full-time staff. Um, nobody gets paid. I have a quarter-time appointment at my church, and I'm the senior pastor. Uh, and we're also looking at repurposing church spaces because we have a, a lucrative you know, property scenario with these churches that have lots of uh, property and history, and we're, we're repurposing those as, as businesses, third places, uh, at a sustainable model financially. Thank you. Yeah. Over there first. Okay. Um, and no, time, what, how much longer are we going to go? Well, 10 minutes total. All right. So I'm going to try to ask a, a question. At least that's all I'm doing. Then I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. In context of the challenge and the opportunity to the North American church, okay, based on what you laid out as challenges, I have, I'm going to say a phrase, and then I want your imaginative response to this phrase. Elmer Gantry says, can't we all get along as we tell the greatest story ever told as the empire strikes back? And I tell you why. You talked about corruption. You talked about an imperialistic church, right? You talked about not telling the story. And you talked about the cultural intelligence, right? That's my best effort to get you guys to give me a collective response quickly. With the Elmer Gantry thing, the, the, the corrupt leadership model that America has definitely, you know, the church, and we, we have allowed the church to, to, to look like that. And, and, and this conquistador thing, and this dropping the ball in the story, and this, are we really trying to get along? You know, and so each one of you can deal with your area like that. Yeah, I kind of and, and, and you know, you are you clear on the question he's asking? I'm not super clear on the question. So, how, how what would you like us to respond? Well, the to? question is, how does that tweak your theological imagination to grapple with the challenges and opportunities facing the church? Because what you've done is we tried to talk about the big problems of the church and we dealt with all those different areas in this short period of time. But if you were trying to imagine, what would the church really need to do? to maybe individually address it, but at the collect, to me the problem is not just one, it's, a, it's all of that. Sure. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. Know, I think right. it's a big question. I don't think you can answer it. So let's put it to what's, what, oh well then all right, we'll move on to that. How about, let's do this, what's your, your one suggestion to the uh, collective church? Mm. Yes, that, does that, that help clarify it? Yeah. That's why I get the big <laughs> Maybe we can say something like this. Let's stop being nice. Okay. Um, and by that, I mean thinking of the grain of sand in an oyster or clam, right? It creates agitation. 
But out of that is something created quite beautiful. So sometimes I think we need to go go ahead and dive into the conflict, not avoid it. Uh, you know what? I think what you just said is true because we pretend to be nice. We're really nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's, that's so, right. Okay. so I'm going to let them so answer because we got to go to the next one. So, no, yeah. So yeah. we're just going to listen to answers. Whoever else wants to take a stab any or any word you want to. I'll go. I think our congregations live in a state of learned helplessness, and we program them for that. And there's an incredible resource in the people of God if we would just release them in their gifts to do what they're called. That's so great. That's, I'm, I'm loving that. All right. Ditto. Wow. Yeah. 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 I don't think I don't think I have anything more to add. All right. Yeah. All right. You and then yeah, and then Mike sir. For, uh, Charles. All right. In this uh, attempt to really pay attention and, and move toward not having implicit bias impact things, what's the end goal in terms of is it like a 50 50 balance? Hmm. Is it where, what are your sights on? What do you mean by the end goal? Help, help, help me. So, like with your hiring, like right now you're 44% oh. people of color. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure, sure. So um, for us, for us globally, we want to reflect our community, the community around us. That's one. Um, and then secondly, for um, our staffing, we want our staff to reflect our congregation. Mm -hmm. That's good. Great. Good. All right. Sir. First off, uh, check out Bill Stanfield in Metanoia in North Charleston, South Carolina. He's doing a lot of work in economic work in the community. Bill Stanford, it's called Metanoia. Okay. So, okay. My question. Your question, yeah. Um, context is so important. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm pastor a small town in North Carolina, now here in the suburb of D.C. Ooh. I understand the huge contextual difference. Uh, my friend here is a pastor in Prince Edward Island Canada. Hmm. Often when we speak from a place of, I would say even privilege, uh, to, to have a spot at a podium or to somebody read our book or whatever it is, we are speaking so strongly from our context and we often assume that the person who's going to listen to us or read what we have to write or whatever is going to be able to do what we've done in their context. I think this is an assumption we make. How do we bridge that gap in order to be able to become more diverse or more uh, whatever they need to do instead of becoming, because I think even in that we still become programmatic, which I think is a huge fault of the church, is pushing programs. How do we, how do we understand the local context of, in, in allowing each context to live into what they are? Instead of trying to push. Is that for anyone particular? Or do you want to just comment? All right. Anybody want to take a stab or two? Is the question kind of like how do we contextualize instead of colonize? Yes, that would be that would be one way of phrasing it. But also, as in trying to communicate with other people to empower and help others, you know, we often speak from our context and assume that they're going to be able to repeat whatever we've done, and mm -hmm. it's not that easy. So you're talking more about generalizable principles than specific yes. practices. Yes. Like basically bottom up, but rather than top down to start. 
Uh-huh. Well, so, so how do we? You understand? Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I I, I think I want to just say. Um, the incarnation gives us a good model and we have to go through the particular to get to the universal so i can't speak from someone else's context so the first part of your point there i would say absolutely because we can only speak faithfully and authentically from our context now the hubris of thinking that that can be bridged into someone else's context that's where we fail but if someone in this room can take one of the stories from this diversity of context that they can apply then there's a learning that happens there. So we talk about loving people. Well, Jesus didn't love people universally. He loved persons that were in front of him one by one. We have to love in the particular. We have to love the person that's in front of us, not sing a song of loving the world, but we love the world by loving the people that are in front of us. So we can, I think cultural intelligence and contextual intelligence is something the church really, I, I think we're, maybe we have great IQ, great theologians, trained, masters, doctorates, very, very low on CQ, very low on understanding even our own context. Uh, so there has to be some unlearning and there has to be some, some boots on the ground understanding of our own before we can yeah. I, I mean, contextually, like I'm in southwestern, uh, southwest in, of Indianapolis, and we're about as white bread Midwest Indiana as you can be. And so, I'm listening to y'all and saying, we don't have. I mean, we have no people of color, you know, even at our church in our community, you know. And so, I'm more at like, we have assumptions though within our congregation that we need to address before we can even, you know, that as as immigration and different, you know, as kind of the. The city keeps moving out, and so it's going to affect us. But we're, you know, when I'm listening to the four of you, I'm going, okay, what are the principles I can extrapolate, you know? And we're not where he's at yet, as far as you know, hiring for for racial diversity. Um, maybe, and we will be, we will need to be soon. But right now, we've got some attitudes to help. We have sure. to help set up some things, I think, for where we are, we're at. I think he gave us the principle when you said we want to look like our community. Yeah, that was great. Like that's a great yeah. principle. That's the yeah. principle, right? Which is, yeah. it was, you want your church to reflect your community. You want our church to reflect our community. And your, community around us. And, your and staff, we want our staff to reflect. And within the staff, the power pieces of that, too. Not well, that's just what we're living right, right now. Yep, exactly. That's what we're living yeah. right now. Yep, yep. Last one. Yeah. Ma'am. Well, you mentioned something about you had, uh, when you had uh, dinner tables, when you go out. Yeah, so the program's called Undivided. It's not ours. It's out of the Crossroads Church in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the, the idea is to develop small groups um, in the congregation that are specific. So they're specifically looking at um, curriculum around re- about, around reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Each one of the small groups have leaders of have two leaders of different ethnicities that are leading a racially balanced, hopefully a racially balanced small group through this curriculum for six weeks. So what we're doing is we're creating a sense of awareness about um, reconciliatory issues. Now, once we've done that for six weeks, we didn't want to just drop it and just hold hands and sing Kumbaya in that sense, but it was more so actually going into someone else's home, a person, so somebody else in the group, going by their home at their dinner table, so not going to Applebee's somewhere, but going, you know, in their home in that sense and having, you know, a dinner of fellowship together after you've been there. And then what we want to do from that in that sense is to create um, on-ramps 
for those groups to be able to engage in acts of social justice. Because the idea is how can we create enough critical masses of people um, to induce fundamental social change in our community. So I was wondering if those groups had mixtures of, of different people. In our, in our, in our, in our um, case, yes. Um, and we're also working with other churches in our community who may be a little bit more homogenous than we are um, and actually trying to connect them with other churches of other races and beginning to say, or the other ethnicities and putting them to the training and saying that maybe you two do that together. Okay, because I was wondering if, if those people connect with you as well too to come into your church and understand how you as African Americans work too um, as, as your congregation to understand how you fellowship. Absolutely. Because we've had people, like I do funerals here, one lady mm -hmm. came in and she said, I've never been into a, yes. a black church. Mm -hmm. I understand how African American funeral goes, how long are you going to have it? No, seriously. Yes. Mm -hmm. And just like when you came up, you introduced yourself. And so I wanted to introduce, uh, we had something in class that talks about pastors serve at the table. You servants. So that's part of serving, okay. you know, when you come to the table. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. You know, that concept of that so when people integrate because when we come to the table we all eat. Amen. you know we like food <laughs> so that, that 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 concept that you were saying i was looking at it from the standpoint of churches coming together as well as communities and cultures coming together if your uh church is doing that not just as that but from the church standpoint yes well and, ju and just one thing one, yep. one quick statement in that sense and for us an end game in that sense is, um, and Beck was helping me about that, was moving from being multicultural to intercultural mm -hmm. in that sense. So just because people are coming together and, mm -hmm. um, and just coming into it, but, but intercultural takes the step further in the sense that we're actually um, interested in developing quantity. Um, where genuine intergroup and, and, and interpersonal interactions start occurring, you know, and so for us, it's really a step along a long road mm -hmm. in that sense to becoming more intercultural and doing and some of the things that you're talking about, some of the challenges you're talking about in that sense, I absolutely agree with and have experience in that sense. We're just trying to develop a roadmap in that sense to get people to move to that point because when you get to that point, what you're experiencing is beloved community. I think all of you are somewhat moving in that direction slowly. And it might not look like it, but you're you're getting it. You're doing it. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, let me let's thank our. <laughs>